last. It would appear not even 2016 could drag me away from this mortal coil. I don't go out on New Year's Eve anymore. Too many accidents. One does not live to my ripe old age by taking frivolous risks. So, I have my own celebrations here in the gallery. I had a few friends over for libations. Well, friends, prisoners, what's the difference? Before I entertain, I always take care to put my more dangerous artifacts into the safe. This book, for example. I acquired it at an estate auction some decades ago. It's quite ancient. Genuine leather, this cover, still intact. And this curious title, Mors Genua Vide. Death is the gate of life. It's one of my more dangerous pieces. I really should get rid of it, however. Such a rare item. This evening's story is by Jake Walters. Mr. Walters has been published in several journals, including the Saturday Evening Post, Forge Literary, and Cast of Wonders. He has spent years teaching English in Transylvania. It will be read for us this evening by Samuel Van Pelt. Wreck on the Highway by Jake Walters Bert had his windshield wipers on their slowest setting, meaning that every several seconds, just far enough apart so that it seemed irregular, they would swipe across the glass, erasing the fine mist that had gathered there from the drizzle. When his headlights washed over a rare sign, the moisture on the glass made the words just a bit blurry. He was driving alone, the radio low, and he was not listening. He did not care whether it was music playing or commercials. He was tired but nowhere near sleep. He felt old but nowhere near retirement. He turned the dashboard lights down low, and the inside of his Chevy was bathed in mellow green. Somehow, even the numbers on his speedometer were just a bit blurry. He blinked his eyes several times to be sure he was not weeping. Why would he weep, he wondered. It was not a job he was fond of, and getting let go was, in a way, a blessing. He considered how he would broach the subject with his wife. He knew that she would look at him in an understanding way, and he disliked that. He wanted her to be angry, even to hit him. He wanted to hit himself. He wanted to... No, he would never hit her. Not because he didn't want to, but because his father taught him different. This was the long way home. He rarely drove it, and he knew that he was only prolonging this time he had alone with his hurt. A secret part of him wanted to get lost on these roads. A secret part of him knew it was possible. He wondered if one could drive and drive and never stop except for gas and pissing. To hell with them anyway, he said aloud. His voice was soft and feminine in the dark. It was okay that his voice sounded that way, because the only person listening was himself. Honey, Mr. James called me in the office today. He let the silence carry, 
broken now by the Supremes and their Motown sound. He said they were cutting back. He imagined her face, shocked, hurt, worried. He tried not to imagine his own face as he spoke to her. He rounded a bend, and his eyes adjusted to the dim conditions, identified a hulking mass in the ditch, crumpled, colorless metal, broken glass, some strewn on the highway, and then the wash of his headlights had passed, and the scene was gone. Momentarily shocked into forgetting his own problems, he shook his head like a man clearing his mind of sleep. That couldn't have been, he said, but he applied his brakes and stopped the car in the middle of the road anyway. Bert looked through all his windows. There was nobody else around, not a light from either a house or another traveler. He shifted into reverse and carefully took his Chevy back the 40 yards he had come since seeing what he was beginning to dread was another car, this one destroyed and lying on its roof. He kept his right hand on the passenger seat as he reversed, steady and calm, and although his back ached already from the unusual position he was holding, he ignored it. This time, when his headlights found the car, there was no mistaking it. It was indeed on its roof, crumpled, broken, shattered. He could not see well, but imagined he could see blood leaking through the driver's side window and into the ditch. He thought he saw one of the tires still spinning lazily in the night. Squeech, cried his wipers as they ran across the windshield, clearing it. Jesus, Bert said, opening his door and stepping onto the pavement. He took a deep breath. He smelled gasoline and oil and grease. Although he did not know if those scents were real or mere figments of his imagination, slowly he approached the car. Hello? Bert called out as he walked forward. He found he was scared, although he did not know of what. Is anybody... Is anybody alive in there? A low, choked moan issued from the car. Bert stopped for a moment until the moaning had ceased, and then he said, trying to make his voice clear and strong in the rain, Are you okay? Just help me, mister, came the reply, shaky and mournful. It was dreamlike, mostly because he had found this accident alone, without police or fire trucks or paramedics, things he at least subconsciously associated with every vehicular accident. But, he reckoned, every accident had to start this way. Just the metal and the gravity or the momentum or the friction or whatever the hell it was, causing a hurtling object to ram itself against another object, moving or stationary. And the souls inside that first object, subject to mutilation, paralysis, death, nightmares, guilty consciousness, haunted futures. Bert ran back to his own car and retrieved his cell phone. He turned it on, a process which lasted a few agonizing moments which seemed forever. He had several new messages, and he barely registered that they were from co-workers, probably wishing him well, telling him it was unfair, all the while thanking God they were not the ones that received those calls. And he dialed 911. There's been an accident, he said after his call was answered by a woman. Her voice, solitary in the night, seemed his last connection to humankind anymore. He relayed the information he knew, which amounted to the approximate location, and that there was at least one victim. But wasn't there always at least one? The voice begged him to stay on the line with it, but he closed the phone anyway. Then he walked up to the car, this time unafraid, and rested his hand on the undercarriage. It felt cold beneath his palm. Are you still with me down there? He said. I'm here, the voice below him replied. What's your name? Bert asked. Bruce. An exasperated sigh came after this, but Bert could not understand it. 
Bert stood there in the rain and nodded his head. An ambulance is on the way, Bruce. Thank you. Are you hurt? I think so. Pretty bad, I think. We'll get you fixed up. I don't think so. Bert could think of nothing to say to this. The truth was that he had no idea of the extent of Bruce's injuries. He could be hanging upside down, his neck snapped, just enough life inside him to string short sentences together, blood spilling out of him into a puddle just beneath his hair. Bert wiped these thoughts away before he was carried away with them, much as his windshield wipers did their timely work. Look, Bert said, suddenly landing on an idea. I'd better move my car so the ambulance can get to you. Don't leave, Bruce said. Bert already turned away, but something in the man's voice stopped him. Just don't. Don't leave. Bert was unsure whether the man was asking Bert to return after he moved the car, or was asking that he not move the car at all, but it was the timber of Bruce's voice that stayed in. It was frail, like a voice one hears through several walls of an abandoned building, the voice of somebody leaving. All right, Bert said. I'll stay right here. Thank you. A protracted silence ensued. Bert thought to ask if the man had a family to whom he should convey a message, but when he thought of himself in that position, calling a stranger and saying those horrible words, I'm sorry, your husband died, he found he did not have the courage to even ask. He wanted me to tell you that he will love you always. Just the idea of it made Bert shudder. Bert wiped away the fine moisture on his forehead, not knowing whether it was rain or sweat. He inhaled deeply and said, I lost my job today. He waited with what he knew was unfair nervousness for Bruce's reply. When it came, it was simple. That's shitty. Yeah, Bert said. Nine long years, nine years of eating their crap, and then they downsized. Bruce coughed, or barked. It was difficult to tell what it was, but it was a series of staccato noises like a snare drum mixed with phlegm or blood. It happens, mate, he said after he finished, his voice weaker. You told your old lady yet? No, Bert answered, not even questioning how Bruce knew he had a wife. I'm scared to. Don't be. Why not? She's going to find out one way or the other, Bruce said, his voice rising from the dark, sounded muffled by cotton. Unless you're going to hide it from her. Pretend to go to work, come home every day like usual, he sighed. A good woman will understand, help you through it. It's just unfair, Bert said, feeling suddenly foolish, telling his problems to a man who had just so recently been confronted by problems much graver. But Bruce laughed. Ain't much fair about today, is there? No, I guess you're right about that. You ain't your job, man. You're right about that too, Bert said. You're gonna be fine. He laughed again, but this time it was completely without humor. I'd give just about everything I own to trade places with you. You're sure there's nothing I can do to help? Bruce grunted, but Bert understood there was nothing. It was the grunt of a man who was looking at his own demise. I feel like I deserve this, Bruce said. What? Sure, I wasn't a good guy. From some indeterminate distance came the sound of a siren. Hear that? Bert said, his voice bright again. Help's on the way. Listen to me, Bruce said. There's one thing you can do for me. What is it? I did a lot of bad things, friend. Stole stuff, cheated on my girlfriend. You know she stayed with me through a lot of bad times. A good woman will, 
Bert said, trying his best to echo Bruce's own sentiment. I have a box. It's in my garage. It's in the bottom of my dad's old toolbox. Big, red toolbox. He coughed until his coughs wheezed into what sounded like the ghosts of sickness. I need to destroy the box. What's in it? Bert asked. Don't look. Don't open it. Just take it and burn it. Although he did not want to agree, he found himself nodding his head in the dark. Okay, he said. What do I tell your girlfriend? Tell her... Tell her I told you. That it's for her own good. She'll understand. Bert took a deep breath. He could do this thing, he thought. He vaguely wondered if it was something illegal, but then brushed the thought away. I will, he said. Thank you. Another series of coughs, this time sputtering out like a stalling motor. And friend, don't you worry about nothing. It's all going to work out. Right, Bert said. Something about the last few exchanges of their conversation left him feeling dirty, but he ignored the feeling. The sound of the siren grew louder, and he saw flashing red and blue lights around the corner. Bert stepped to the middle of the road, illuminated by his own headlights, and waved his arms back and forth. The ambulance pulled up to the side of the road where the destroyed car lay. Two paramedics jumped down. A fire truck came, and one of the men asked Bert to move his car. He pulled it forward, out of the way and left the engine running while he stepped out of his vehicle to watch. He felt he needed to see this thing through to the end. He felt that he needed to see Bruce at least once. He watched them crawl to the driver's side window, manipulate the seatbelt or whatever else hindered them from doing their jobs properly. Removing Bruce proved to be an agonizingly slow process. When finally they extracted him, Bert knew he was dead. He was a limp mannequin who looked unremarkable, other than being dead. They strapped him onto a stretcher anyway, and then loaded him into the back of the ambulance. Bert did not want to see anymore. He got in his car and drove home. She was waiting for him at the kitchen table when he took his shoes off and sat across from her. Her first question was, what happened? I lost my job, he said. He'd been unsure whether he would lead with the information about the accident or this, but this came out freely and fluidly. What? They called me in, downsizing. Bunch of bullshit. Sent me packing. She stood and came to him. She wrapped her arms around his chest and hugged him from behind. He enjoyed the smell of her. Are you okay? She asked him. I felt surprisingly good about it, he said, patting her forearm. We're going to be all right, she said, her voice plaintive, as though she was speaking to no one. So I've heard, Bert said. Bert spent the next morning thinking about the box while he scanned the newspaper. There was a brief article about the accident. 34-year-old Bruce Greenwald was killed in a single-car accident around 8 p.m. on Hendershot Road. Police say alcohol and drugs were not factors. Dispatch received a call at 8.12 from an unknown witness. By the time paramedics arrived... What could be in the box? Something personal or something dangerous? Bert's mind tickled through the most likely possibilities. Drugs, weapons, child pornography, counterfeit bills, ladies' undergarments that perhaps the dead man liked to don when he was alone and fiending to fulfill his fetish. Thought about each in turn, and then closed the paper and pushed the thoughts from his mind at the same time. He would go, and he would do as he was asked, because he had given a dying man his word. The inside of his own car felt alien to him as he slid behind the wheel this morning. He remembered best the drive home after seeing Bruce carted away by the ambulance. Bert 
sitting in the dark, peering through the intensifying rain, thinking about that lone spinning wheel. He had thought that his own life was like that wheel, scudding around on its axle, wobbling silently, but he could not put into words why it was so. This morning, he thought he knew. It was because, even though it no longer served any purpose, the wheel spun on, just because momentum had forced it to spin. He had gotten the address from an internet search, and it took him ten minutes to drive to Bruce's house and park at the curb. He peered through the passenger window at the lonely house. No signs of life, and why should there be any? Did the house look any different after its inhabitant died? Bert took a deep breath, not because he was nervous or scared, but simply because he felt it was occasioned by his mission. And then he opened his door and stepped outside of his car. Bert entered through the side garage door, which was unlocked. It smelled of oil and dust inside the garage, and it was dark and tight, like what Bert imagined it was inside a submarine. He allowed his eyes to adjust and then scanned the interior. A workbench, a couple of bicycles, various electronic guts and gears, and the toolbox. Bert walked over to it. It was chest high and looked heavy. He reached out and rested his hand on its top. The metal was cold. All right, he said to himself, startled by the sound of his own voice. He opened the bottom drawer and felt inside. Almost instantly, his hand rested on a cardboard box. He slid it out, the size of a shoebox. It was not heavy, nor particularly light, as though perhaps it contained six or seven magazines. He gazed down at it for a moment. This was the time. If he was going to open it, he was going to do it now. Forgive me, he said aloud, this time unsurprised by his own words. He took the lid off the box and set it gently down beside his foot. He thought the air dropped a few degrees in temperature. His skin broke into a rash of goosebumps, and he tried to laugh them away, reminded of his grandmother, telling him that was a sign someone had walked over the site of his future grave. Inside the box was a leather-bound book and a fountain pen. That was all. Huh, Bert said. Either this is the classiest child porn ever, or you had yourself a secret diary, Bruce, he said. He felt suddenly silly, kneeling in the dead man's garage, rifling through his old journal. Bert made to replace the lid when he saw, in faint gray, the title etched into the book, Morgenua Vitae. Bert figured it was Latin, but his knowledge of foreign languages ended with one and a half years of high school Spanish. Something about the phrase caught his fancy, however, and he put the lid back on the floor of the garage. He removed the book from the box and brushed it off. A fine layer of garage dust had settled on him, even if it was protected by a box. The first page. This book is yours. Bert chuckled. Fair enough, he thought. I opened it. It's mine. Page two, dated April 1789. A fat horse, a bag of gold, a young wife in my neighbor's head. What the hell is this? Bert said, fighting back the urge to sneeze. The handwriting was crooked and loopy, the work of a child or a near-illiterate adult. He turned the pages and found more cryptic messages, all arranged in short sentences. A hector of land, a diamond the size of an apple, a pound of flesh, a son to whom to bequeath all worldly possessions. Bert sat back on his haunches for a moment and considered. It dawned on him slowly, not in the way most epiphanies do, not as a freight train smacking into his forehead, but as a storm gathering on the horizon and creeping closer. These were all wishes. In a moment of inspiration, he flipped to the last page and worked backwards, knowing he would find Bruce's wish. Just one word, scrawled in blue-collar penmanship, dated three days ago. Immortality. That's stupid, Bert said, snapping book closed. He died yesterday. Because he had said the sentence so softly, he repeated it, louder, forcing the words out of his mouth like shards of broken glass. He died yesterday. 
Bert found he was breathing harder, and he worked to control his heart rate. And, when he was sufficiently in control of himself, he whispered, Didn't he? He felt suddenly like the worst kind of intruder, like he was purveying someone's filthiest sexual fantasy, and he stood, but clutched tightly to his chest, and made for the door. He paused, and then returned to the box, carefully lifting the old fountain pen from inside. He tucked it into his front pocket and exited the garage. The sky was clear, and the air was crisp, and he felt like he had just awakened from some foolish nightmare. The garage loomed behind him and seemed to simultaneously pull him back and ward him off. Bert drove home, the book beside him like a hitchhiker who has shown himself to have violent intentions. When he arrived, he told himself he would burn it. It was what Bruce asked, and it seemed the right thing to do. Besides, although there was nothing demonstratively evil about the tome, it was certainly sinister. It was like keeping a photo album of executed family members, their portraits composed just moments before they were led to the gallows. He took the book to the basement, where he could be reasonably sure of privacy, though he had the house to himself and would until his wife arrived home from work later that afternoon. Bert flipped through the pages. They were chronological, the earliest in 1789, each page displaying a different handwriting. Some pages were nearly full with words, and others, like Bruce's, contained only one. February 1932. Don't let me lose my family. My money, okay. Not my family, please. Please, please. July 1967. Sex. September 1969. Not to go to war. Not to see Vietnam. Not to fight Charlie. Not to hold no guns. There are some spaces of time when nobody had wished for anything. Bert imagined the book tucked away safely in some country library, or Bert buried in a chest somewhere. But it always seemed to find daylight again in another dreamer's hand. Before he knew it, he had written the current month and year at the top of a new page. Jesus, he said, ripping the pen away from the paper. What am I doing? Then he chuckled. What was he doing? Playing a game, blowing smoke, farting in the wind. But he thought of the old story of the monkey's paw, the wishes is so terribly granted, and he thought of Bruce lying on a cold slab in a morgue, and then in a few days, buried but conscious, to spend eternity staring at the complete, suffocating darkness inside his casket. The thought sent a cold spike down his spine, and he shivered. Bert's hand began shaking, and he sent the pen down and closed the book. Not worth the risk, he said aloud, but his voice was that of a scared child. Bert found himself attracted to the book, hidden beneath old magazines in his basement. Over the course of the next few days, he waited, feigning patience until his wife left, and then he climbed down to read through the wishes again. He tried to imagine what ironic twists could await each misguided wish. The man who wished for a goat, did his wife turn into a farm animal? The one who wished to be more attractive to women, perhaps he was morphed into a cute little puppy, petted but never stroked. And it made him sick to think of it. The handwriting was the dopey, curly cues of a little girl wishing her parents would get back together. How might fate have destroyed her innocent dream? Bert could imagine the father coming back one evening, axe in his hands, chopping the family up, and then committing suicide by slicing his own throat. Together forever. It was a guilty sort of pleasure, and he felt dirty every time he viewed the book. It gave him a certain thrill to flip through the pages, which seemed to be multiplying when he was not around, and trying to imagine what kind of lives those people had lived. After a few days, he saw it announced in the local paper that Bruce's funeral and viewing were to be that afternoon. He pretended not to take any special notice, and he kissed his wife as she left for work. 
He dressed in a suit and crammed his feet into what he thought of as his elegant shoes. He double-checked the address of the funeral home and then got into his car and started driving. I'm going to bury it with him, he told himself, but he was driving to the funeral home without the book. It was an hour before the viewing was to begin. He parked in a nearly empty lot to the side of the funeral home, forwent the obligatory deep breath, stepped out of his car, and entered. It was well lit, but still seemed dark inside. It smelled of stale, dressed death. It was a place of utter, somber despair. He hated it instantly. Can I help you? A man asked, approaching from a side hallway. There were imitation marble pillars on the walls, cream-colored, perfect. I'm here to see Bruce, Bert said. Oh, the man said, glancing at his watch. You're a bit early. I'm terribly sorry, Bert said. He knew, at this point, that he would do anything to see Bruce before they buried him. He would never dig the body up to see it. This was his only chance, and he simply had to know. I can only stay for a few moments, and this was really the only chance I have today to come. Perfectly all right, the man said, moving back and inviting Bert to enter the hallway from which he had appeared. Just this way. Bert followed him into a small room. At the head of the room was a casket. It was open. I guess he wasn't too mangled, huh? Bert said when he saw the lid tilting back. The man did not respond for a moment, then said quietly, We did our best. Bert approached, aware that the man was not coming with him to the coffin. That was good. That would mean that he could be alone with the body, that he could look down and evaluate things for himself and see the truth. It hardly looked like Bruce, although Bert had only had a passing glimpse of him as he was extracted from the wrecked car, and that in the rain and at night. He wondered, idly, if death changed the way a person looked so very much. He supposed that in all likelihood it did. Hey, buddy, he said, peering down at the dead face. There was no peace written across the features there. To Bert, it looked as though the man was stuck in the process of taking his final breath, paradoxically, over and over again. I suppose if you can hear me, you're wondering about the book. He watched carefully for any movement, a twitch, a spasm, a tick. He saw none. He thought about the words he was saying to the dead man. Nothing incriminating, at least not yet. I couldn't just let it go, Bruce. You understand. Who could? But Bruce gave no answer. Bert tried to imagine his consciousness stuck inside the corpse, listening, beating out against the inner walls of its trapped soul, trying to urge him to destroy the book, that it was not too late. But you know, Bert went on, if it's true, if its power is real, I mean, I don't think you can destroy the book. He took a deep breath, filled with the aroma of the death halls he was surrounded by. Did you ever try? You must have read through it before you wrote in it. Everyone reads it. How else do you know what to write? Bert reached down and took Bruce's hand. He lifted it from the dead man's chest and held it cold and limp in his own palms. He squeezed the hand hard. He saw no response. Bert lowered his head. Sure, he looked as though he were in prayer to any other observer. Finally, he lowered his hand again and turned to walk away. If I was going to spend eternity in one position, he thought as he walked toward the exit, I'd want one hand on my dick. And with that, he left the funeral home and drove away. Some of the wishes were single words. Some were written as poems. Some were scrawled as if in a hurry, broken grammar and misspellings. Some were composed in the tone of a beggar, the word please used more often than even excellent manners dictated. Bert assembled his 12-gauge, double-barreled shotgun, loaded it with buckshot, and slipped it into an old guitar case. 
He had not played the guitar in several years, ever since he was married. Why didn't he wish to become a rock star and die of a heroin overdose, he wondered. His wife was not home yet. He resigned himself to the fact that he would not see her again. He left the book buried beneath the same magazines in the basement. He even threw a couple old rags on top of the pile to give the impression of garbage. Maybe she'll come down and clean everything, he thought. Maybe she'll see the big pile and just toss it all in the garbage. But he knew that would not be the end for the book. A zealous garbage man, a homeless person, a young kid crawling through the dump. Somebody would find the book, realize its value, and write in it again. Bert placed the guitar case carefully in the back seat, started his car, and drove to work. He thought of the book the entire way there. He thought of Bruce and his dead man's appearance. He thought of the last page in the book which contained any writing. His own page. The word he had written there. Small, sure, and neat. Revenge. What would you write in the book? Would it be worth your soul? I admit, there were times during the last year that I had been tempted more than ever to write in it. However, let's have another story. When he was 12 years old, Nathan Susnick's mother forced him to take the Wisconsin Boating Safety Exam. During college, he used his knowledge to become a deckhand on the steamboat Julia Bell Swain. He now lives in Hanover, Germany, with his wife and children, where he does considerably less boating. His story will be read for us by Tepic Harlequin. Tepic is an urchin who lives in the city of New Babbage. He's eight, going on ancient. River and Sea by Nathan Susnick Peering through the pilot house windows, the clockwork deckhand logs the miles travelled today. Zero. Although he is four stories up, he cannot see the river. Only asphalt surrounds the dry dock. He descends three flights of blue stairs, returning to his stool behind the engineer's stand. His joints creak. A single word rings through his mechanical head. Defunct. He looks at his watch. It goes tick-tock. If only it went... Tock, tick. Then, generations of crews would return with an engineer, always a fat man, shouting into the speaking tube to the pilot. And the pilot, always a skinny man, shouting back. Every pilot was the same, except for the last. She had been a skinny woman. The clockwork deckhand had called her pilotess. She had called him obsolete. 
If his watch went top, tick, then generations of summers would return, with water lapping on hull, and sun glinting on water, and the cook grumbling in the galley, and utensils clinking on second deck, while the summer people, wearing smiling eyes and short pants, chew steaming mouthfuls, and the wonder-eyed children would stop looking at their tiny flashing screens to marvel at the churning paddle wheel and see the shushing engines and hear the shrill calliope. And the clockwork deckhand would work and be happy. If his watch went tock, tick, then generations of travellers would return. They would follow the river south to the sea and the boat would pass through locks, the clockwork deckhand waiting to see new wonders on the other side. There he would meet the collared man, and during lock delays, while the towboats travelled back and forth, pushing barges three by three, they would talk. Do you like your work? the collared man would ask. Yes, I am made for it. That is good, the collared man would say. Most people do not know what they were made for. I have never asked for your name, the collared man would say when they arrived at the sea. Coaleth, first generation AI. The collared man would rub his chin, gazing out over the endless water. Coaleth, he would say. Remember, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. And the clockwork deckhand would understand. He was the river, the boat his sea. But now the tick-tocking of his watch had antiquated steam, has dried his sea, has made him obsolete. If his watch went top, tick, then he would marvel at the sea. If his watch went top, tick, then he would be a river again. But no matter how often he winds it backwards, his watch only goes tick, tock. Creaking joints frozen with rust, the clockwork deckhand sits, considering river and sea, until his ancient watch stops. In the sudden silence he looks up. The boat is on the water again, the deckhand at the helm. Behind him thousands of rivers crisscross his main channel. In front of him is a closed gate. Next to him stands the collared man, have no fear, the collared man whispers, taking Coelus' metal hand in his. This is only lock delay. Beyond lies endless sea. This episode was produced under Creative Commons International 4.0, non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. 
in January of 2017. Share it widely, but don't sell it, change it all, make a transcript. Tonight's story musics were by Kevin MacLeod. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by D.E.V.M. For full show notes, visit the gallery webpage at gallerycurious.com. Coming soon to the Gallery of Curiosities. Never get too close to the fairies. I've heard stories of experienced woodcutters sticking knives into their own eyes because of these little monsters. Pet Shop by Gary Buller. Do come visit.